Blog Talk Radio. edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard. It's the podcast discussing news and politics from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy, Objectivism. I'm your host, Amy Peekoff, and today joining me in the studio again, an embarrassment of riches, I have Yaron Brook, President and Executive Director of the Ayn Rand Institute, and later cartoonist Bosch Faustin. Today's topics, as I said in the little teaser, are evasion, email, and excellence. Then the only question is, who is evading what? It's going to be Bloomberg evading something about his horrendous policies. You'll see in a second. Dennis Rodman, I guess you can't probably guess what he's evading. And much of Hollywood evading the nature of Chavez this week. I've got a story about email, in particular a Berkeley lawmaker who wants to tax email in order to prop up a failing U.S. Postal Service and then later excellence, we will see, or not see, but talk about inspiring spectacles from the world of politics and also sports. I've also got a couple good news stories from the world of privacy law, which is kind of a cool thing, so we'll do that at the end. So let's go ahead and dive in, Yaron. Thanks for joining me again here. Let's talk first about New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg. Last week, we had a segment called Dumb News, and we discussed Bloomberg's statement that telecommuting was dumb, which turns out not to only be hypocritical in his case because he does nothing but telecommute, but also wrong because really, you know, if telecommuting is good, it depends on the particular working individual, the particular company, you know, in other words, the context. Uh, this week, we see him actually evading the nature of the type of controls that he has exerted in the city of New York. Uh, the headline of the story is actually about something that he hasn't done yet, but I guess they're asking him whether he'd think of doing it. The headline of the story is Bloomberg says government probably shouldn't force people to exercise. <laughs> I love the word probably. Why not? Yeah, I know. I mean, come on. You know, it's, it's good for you. We, we should just force you to do what's good for you, right? But uh, in the story itself, it says that the mayor was asked whether he would consider ordering mandatory gym memberships, and he admitted that's taking things too far. And then here's the quote from Bloomberg about his soda ban. He says, quote, Well, you have to be practical about what legally you can do and what people will do, said Bloomberg. He says, The nice thing about soda is it's really just the soda thing. He says it's really just a suggestion. So if you want to buy 32 ounces, you just have to carry it back to your seat in two cups. And maybe that would convince you to only take one. But if you want to, you can do it. I think government's job is to give you advice, not force you into things, end quote. So he's saying, your own that force isn't involved in his soda ban, that, you know, the banning large soda, there's, there's no force. Well, partially it's because he doesn't consider uh, the the owner. He doesn't consider the owner of the business. I mean, the real force is over the owner who can't offer the 32 option. Uh, and he is forcing the owners to, to, you know, 
to regu- he's regulating kind of the size of soda. It's so absurd. It's hard to talk about. Um, but yeah, you see this. Uh, you see this on the left all the time. Uh, you know, when I debate David Callahan, I debate other leftists. They they all they want to pretend. They want to evade that government is not force. So because they understand that everybody's against the initiation of force. Nobody's for. Nobody says it's okay for the poor to rob from the rich. That's wrong. It's wrong for the poor to take out guns and actually steal the money from the rich. But somehow, if we do it through the democratic process and government steals from the rich and gives to the poor, somehow that's not stealing. It's not force. Uh, Somehow that's we, and I hear this all the time. They always talk in these terms. We have agreed that it's right for the sake of society to give money from some, take money from some people and give it to others. We've agreed and therefore it's not force. Now, you always say, well, what if I don't agree? Well, you're part of the social contract, right? You've agreed to accept what the majority determines and therefore it's not force. Now, and that's why, you know, all these things are very philosophical. You have to blow up the whole idea of uh, the social contract, the idea that you've agreed uh, right. to give up your rights or to give up your freedom in order to live in society, which is absurd. Right. And I mean, all of these business owners in New York City who are forced not to sell these sodas, I assume that there's some sort of fine they'd have to pay if they were caught selling sodas that were too big or, you know, the forced into paying that fine. Yes, of yes, course. Of absolutely. Course. So, so, I mean, that, that's force right there. Uh, but, you know, you would say to them, well, you've benefited from government, you know, the employees that you employ have been educated in government schools. We maintain the public roads that your customers come to you on. And so who are you to say that we can't, you know, regulate just this tiny little regulation just to nudge people in the right direction? Yeah, and Stuart in the chat room was talking about yeah. this idea that comes from Cass Sunstein's well, book it's, about the nudging. I mean, that, that idea has been around for yeah, a long time. Yeah, it's been that. around for a long time. Cass Sunstein just took the idea and kind of formalized it and created a best-selling book out of it. Uh, but but the idea, the, this idea of paternalism has been, the, this form of paternalism has been around uh, way before Kant Sunstein, uh, you know, uh, wrote about it. But but yeah, I mean, but the fundamental here is is that they evade the issue of force. They evade that indeed it is force. And it, it's also, their whole perspective, and this is where you have to challenge them, their whole perspective is collectivistic, right? We did this. You as a group did that. It's all about collectivism. They never think in terms of the individual, right? Because the fact is that the the owner of the store, you know, even within this world, right, pay taxes. Those, you know, the roads don't get built. So this is this is the myth of uh, you didn't build it. The roads don't get built until somebody creates wealth that is taxed in order to build the roads. So government can't function unless it has money and the only place it can get money is from people who are productive who create the wealth so even in that cycle right even with the idea of we have public schools and we built the roads no businessmen built the roads even if they didn't literally build them they provided the money for the building of them businessmen build the public schools 
It's the taxes that build all of that. Well, and if you think about the efficiency of anything done through the government, imagine how much better the roads would be oh, if it wasn't filtered through the government. Sure, that's absolutely. Whole, that's another and, story and then, for another day. And then you trade for it, right? You yeah. pay the toll or you pay the, the fee in order to use the roads, and that's your payment for it. And that's the thing. It's like you couldn't build this business without the employees. Yeah, that's right, and I pay for them. I pay them a salary, and they get a benefit, and I get a benefit, and that's the beauty of markets. They're win-win relationships. Uh, government is a win-lose relationship. Well, actually, at the end of the day, it's a lose-lose relationship. If people want to call and get in on the discussion, it's 760-888-5817. Again, that's 760-888-5817. And if you do call in, make sure to click the little uh, icon that says that you have a question that you want to ask either to me or probably to Dr. Brooke because... He's the one who knows here. Let me let me continue on with a, a separate point that Bloomberg makes here. He says, although there are some things we try and force you to do, he continued, if there's asbestos in the classroom or your office building, we force you out. If you want to drink and drive, we try and stop you, although sometimes not as successfully as you'd like. He says, I think some of these other things, calorie counts that we've done in chain restaurants, so you can see what you're eating or okay. He says, but when it comes to forcing you, he says, the only thing government can do practically and I think should do is education. But of course, they're forcing restaurants to have the calorie counts. Right. That's force. But, but you see, they don't count business as having any rights. So, you know, telling business what to do doesn't count. Uh, he's not forcing you to use the calorie count. He's not forcing you to go into this restaurant and go into that restaurant. But he's forcing the restaurants, and that doesn't count for him because that's a business, and business, business is okay to do what, whatever you want. But, you know, they, they are evading the whole concept of what force is, and then they're evading the costs because the costs are passed on to the consumers in the end. You pay for the calorie counts, the menus, and all that, and if you really wanted it, you could have, you know, we as consumers would have, could have demanded it. Um, and uh, he evades the fact that businesses are just people. All businesses are individuals that have the same rights as every other individual does. But because they're out to make money, it's okay to force them to regulate them. And also note that he equivocates. He equivocates between legitimate uses of government, where government is there in, uh, you know, to prevent the initiation of force, like stopping drunk drivers, mm -hmm. and where government is the initiator of force. He's equivocating between, and they always do this, the left always does that, and they say, well, of course we need government. They're crooks. We need to catch the crooks. And then there are these people who might feed you too many calories. We need to feed. We need to catch the people who feed you too many calories. And they equivocate between being a crook and, be, and 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 feeding you too many calories, or you choosing to eat too many calories. And you need to call them. That's that's you know. And it's it's tricky because they they do it so often. They do it on everything, but they equivocate all the time. They don't differentiate between initiation of force and just using force. Right. And I, how he can even keep a straight face and not realize that there's force in here, because supposedly he was a successful businessman at some point, so he must be aware. Of they the all do this. They all they have they they you know it's part of it's not just an issue of evading they they're evading, but it's also not thinking in principle, right? So what is the principle of force? What is the definition of force? Can can he articulate the definition of force? They can't. They they, they have no conception of that. Uh, and they can't think in principle. They're pure pragmatists. Uh, there are no principles really in their world. Uh, so, you know, it's a, in the in in the minds of these people, there's so many bad things going on that it, you know it's hard to say this is evasion and this is pragmatism. I mean, it's all this 
horrible epistemology that they, they're carrying around with them. Yep, and it all contributes. We've got a call here. I'm not sure if it's somebody with a question or somebody just listening. We'll check it out. Hi, who's this? Hi, Amy. It's Debbie. Oh, hey, Debbie. Okay, you didn't have the little question thing selected, so I didn't know if you wanted to chime in or not. You're chiming in in the chat room, I see, which is cool. Welcome Actually, back. Actually, you know, thank you. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny that you were saying that because I had originally called just to listen, but then I was trying to figure out how to raise my little question icon because I wanted to uh, say something, so you must have read my mind. Um, you know, I just kind of was wondering, to, interested to hear you guys, Amy and your own, to hear your take on the um, the fact that Bloomberg is a businessman and, and a very successful one at that, like that he could come from that kind of a background, but still then be in this position where he's initiating force left and right and regulating other businessmen, like as a businessman himself. How How is that possible? <laughs> Well, I mean, most businessmen are like this. I mean, think Mitt Romney in the Republican Party. He was going to regulate and control and do all that stuff. Think of all the politicians who, who used to be businessmen. Or think about all the all the businessmen who lobby, who lobby to use force here and to use force there. I mean, it's a combination of things. It's a combination of uh, pragmatism. It's It's the fact that, yes, you know, maybe they apply certain business principles and they're focused and they compartmentalize. And they're very rational, good, in a very narrow area in business, but they can't think in principle outside of that area, and they and they they just don't think, um, you know, coherently and in principle about the the big issues. And you see this over and over again. I mean, I, how many businessmen are there that are the opposite of Bloomberg, who actually understand the regulation is forced, that actually understand that it's wrong, and that actually would advocate for the elimination of all these regulations. Almost nobody. I mean, think about Warren Buffett and Bill Gates who want taxes to go up and who want government increase involvement. I mean, it's it's really and, – and this is the tragedy. These are the best in society. These are the best people. And even they can't get it. Even they, you know, are crushed by the load of altruism and, uh, you know, and a bad epistemology. And it's a combination of both those things. You know, and when I think of this, uh, oh, sorry, uh, Debbie, I was just going to say about this education piece. Uh, have you seen, Debbie, these commercials that they're putting into our basketball viewing lately about smoking? No, I haven't. You know, I actually don't have, uh, I don't really watch TV ever. So I, I, wa- I watch very little, but I've been watching some basketball. And the government has been funding these really horrendous anti-smoking commercials where you see people who had horrible, horrible cancer. And this one woman, I'm sorry I have to describe it to you because once I do, you're just going to be horrified. But she's smoking a cigarette through a little, I guess, tracheotomy hole. Is that the thing that they do where they cut the thing? It is so disgusting. And they are interrupting our basketball. I mean, it's bad enough when Obama shows up to talk about basketball on those days. But then they're forcing us, the taxpayer, to pay for these horrible things, too. So that's what they say about education. That's the government's role to educate us, right? Well, it's more than to educate us. The government's role according to most people, and this includes businessmen, is to take care of us. It's to make sure we don't do stupid things. It's it's to educate us, it's to teach us. I mean, how many people really object to a paternalistic government? Most people accept paternalism as the appropriate role of government, and this is true of most businessmen. I mean, it, most businessmen want – I mean, if you, when you talk to businessmen, they all say – we want freedom in our sector, but those other guys, they need to be regulated. They need to be controlled because if you let them alone, 
they would do horrible things. Again, they cannot think in principle, and they're not taught to think in principle. Uh, you know, they're taught in business ethics classes and in, in uh, philosophy classes or in just business school. They're taught to be pragmatists. They're taught to do what they can get away with. They, they, they're not taught to think in any kind of principled way. Now, if they're successful in business, they have to think in principle about some things. But but they're very good at compartmentalizing, and they can't generalize on that. And that's why businessmen do not make good politicians. They They actually make awful politicians because they view – you know, politics is just a, a, a another pragmatic, you know, it, it reminds me of Paulson, you know, John Paulson, who was, who was chairman and CEO of, of Goldman Sachs. So he is a guy who, who knows finance, who knows what was his instinct during the financial crisis. His instinct in a financial crisis was to do a deal, was 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 to cut deals, to, to distribute money, to get mergers and acquisitions going. It was to control. It was to manipulate which is the instinct an investment banker has, but he has it in a voluntary sector of the economy. And now Paulson has a gun. He has a huge gun where he can force people, but he doesn't see that. His job is save the U.S. economy. Let's rush out and force these guys to marry these guys and these guys to accept this cash and to do this with it and to stop that and all in the name of saving the economy because that's his job. That's how he defines it. Bloomberg defines his job as taking care of people in New York. And if I have to force them to do what's right... That's okay. I, you know, I'll force them. And I'm sure if he could find a way to force us to exercise, he would. It's just not very practical. Well, I mean, that was implicit. He said it's probably yeah. not right. Yeah, because he, he can't I, find a way to yeah. do it, actually. But, but, but you know, that's just a, a problem to be solved. But remember, that's his job title, the guy who takes care of New Yorkers. There's no conception of government as protecting us, government as there to protect our individual rights, there's no conception of what individual rights mean. There's no conception of what freedom means. I mean, who defines freedom? Everybody is – can you – you find one liberal who doesn't believe in freedom. Everybody believes in freedom. But then you ask them, what does it mean? Nobody knows. Nobody can define it. Freedom from what? What are you, what are you free of, from? Um, nobody can define it. Individual rights. Who in America is not for individual rights? Well, maybe Pelosi. But other than Pelosi, everybody's for them. <laughs> But does anybody know what they mean? Does anybody actually, can anybody, I mean, in the Republican setting, everybody said, oh, right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. None of them could define individual rights. And I'm not talking about Ayn Rand's definition. I'm talking about the funny father's definition none of them uh, have. They all want free markets. They have no clue what that means. They all want capitalism. I mean, even Obama's for capitalism. None of them can define it. So they can't, I mean, the fundamental problem in our society is people can't and don't think. They're epistemologically destroyed. They, they cannot conceptualize. They don't have definitions. They have no principles. And everything else flows from that. Altruism flows from that. Collectivism flows from that. Socialism and statism flows from that. And ultimately, nihilism, you know, that mixed with, with, with horrible emotions, you get nihilism. Debbie, you get the last word on this story. What do you think? <laughs> wow. Well, uh, yeah, you know, I think that I recall even the communists say that they're for freedom because they want to liberate the worker from the Absolutely. exploitation of the landowners and, and so on. So it, it, it's truly amazing to me that these people can say with a straight face that they're for freedom. But, uh, yeah, no, I agree. They, everyone's for it, supposedly. But This is why it's so important to define our terms. Right, when right. we talk about freedom, we're talking about freedom from coercion. And then we have to define coercion and clearly telling people what drinks they can drink. 
Uh, clearly, you know, for the government to do that, clearly that's coercion. And you have to be able to differentiate when the government tells a shopkeeper you can't serve 32 gallon or whatever ounces of, of soft drink to a, to a storekeeper choosing voluntarily to only serve 16 ounces. Why isn't he forcing his customers? What's the difference? So it, it, this is not simple. They, I mean, this is one thing I think objectivists forget. They don't have a good conception of None of these concepts are simple or self-evident. Yeah, yeah, Stephanie, I, I didn't mean 32 gallons. Although that's okay, I guess, if it's the right drink. Um, <laughs> Wine. <laughs> give me, yeah, give me a good, 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 good 32 gallons, a really good, uh, you know, cabernet. Um, it's really important for us to define our terms. It's really important for us to to be patient with people because this is not easy uh, you know for the for the people who are truly innocent it's it's not easy because the the, the the terms have been so corrupted the terms have been so distorted by the culture by intellectuals by our politicians it's very difficult for people to understand what coercion means what force means what freedom means what any of these terms mean they can't understand what the difference is between government dictating the size of drinks and a business dictating the size of drinks. Right, or censorship is one of the worst ones. Yeah, censorship, yeah. Uh, you know, it's a censorship. When the government says you can't say X or when Fox News says you can't say X. Same thing to them. To them, it's the same thing. And and it, it, it goes to the nature of what coercion is and it goes to the nature of what rights are. And in, unless we have that, you know, you you cannot convince anybody. That's why the battle for capitalism, the battle for freedom is so hard and requires so much thinking and so much explanation and so much speaking and so much holding people's hands. Uh, or hopefully they just read Ayn Rand and they get it. Okay, so more evasion, your own. It, there's more evasion in the well, world this, this week to talk about. I mean, there's more than this even, but I just these we, are the ones that stuck out for me this week. We have... Chavez died. He he's still dead, as far as I know, right? That's the joke that keeps going around that Hugo Chavez is still dead. But they they're em, uh, embalming him, right? Oh, who knows? No, no, they, they are. are. Oh, and God. they're gonna put they him put in a glass display. glass uh, case, uh, and they're gonna have uh, a whole mausoleum museum to display Chavez's body, uh, uh, and, uh, and they'll course, go and worship him. Of course they are. Of course they are. Oh, that's gross. Um, yep. In any event, this article I came to. Via this little blog that I know of, it's uh, capitalism.einrand.org. Oh, that's my that's right. Yeah, that's, that's my your blog. that's your blog. <laughs> your blog along with John Watkins. Uh, but it pointed to an investor's business daily story, and the headline is contrary to what Jimmy Carter says, Venezuela's Hugo Chavez was no friend of the poor. And then there's a series of quotations from politicians, media, Hollywood, very notably. Uh, Sean Penn, for example, said. Poor people around the world have lost a champion. Michael Moore, one of our favorite filmmakers, said, quote, he, Chavez, used the oil money to eliminate 75% of extreme poverty, provide free health care and education for all. That was on Twitter. Uh, and then Oliver Stone said of Chavez <laughs> that he is, quote, a great hero, end quote. So I think Oliver Stone made a documentary, a pro-Chavez documentary, if I remember right. Oh. So, so this is the so clearly this is massive evasion and it's it, this is just evil. I mean, this guy was talk about freedom, anti freedom, anti free speech, an, you know, anti economic freedom, anti individual rights. Uh, he was a authoritarian, uh, but he did win elections. The people in Venezuela really did love him. I mean, this is part of the mythology 
You remember George Bush said uh, what we all have uh, a yearning for freedom in our hearts? BS, if you can say that on the radio. I think you can on the Internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's complete nonsense. Uh, people do not have a yearning for liberty and freedom. I think that if, if in communist Russia, if they had had elections, Stalin would have won. I, I just think that people – Hitler clearly won an election and, and, and I think would have won even more elections if they'd held them later on uh, in, the, in the 30s and early 40s. People do not have a yearning for freedom. But the complication of Venezuela and why these kind of statements about the poor gain any kind of credibility is that pre-Chavez, at least if you go back to the 50s and 60s and 70s, much of South America was uh, and still is, was and still is very much run, um, you know, like a, a feudal society. So there were many, many people who were poor. They indeed did not have equal rights with other people. Uh, The rich exploited them through the legal system, through government. There was this cozy, cozy relationship between business and government, uh, and and it really did hurt the poor. And that that kind of distorted economic model, distorted political, ethical, moral model, is what makes it possible for somebody like Chavez to rise up, to become very popular, and to gain some sort of credibility, because he did go after the the crony rich and did, you know, kind of in a Robin Hood fashion, distribute the, the, the wealth to the poor. Of course, what nobody realizes is the correct model. The real way to fix that is through capitalism, is through real freedom, is through taking away the goodies, uh, the, you know, the special favors for the rich, embody, giving the poor, you know, full protection of their individual rights, giving them the right to property, you know, and and allowing them to rise up, providing them with a, with a, with a society that, that creates opportunities for them through the protection of equal rights. So it is it is the fact that there's no capitalist alternative, real capitalist alternative, that gives any kind of legitimacy to this to this evasion and and you know evil statements that uh, that come out of the left of the Sean Penns and and the Oliver Stones and the Michael Moores of the world. Of course they whole framework of thinking, and I know this particularly of Oliver Stone, and this is true of Michael Moore as well, is pure Marxism. I mean, Oliver Stone is a Marxist. He's very intellectual. If you watch his movies, they have a real Marxist theme to them. You know, in that sense, you know, he's not like Obama, who I think is a pure nihilist and doesn't have, I don't think Obama's a Marxist, but Oliver Stone really is a Marxist. He believes in the labor theory of value. He believes that the workers are exploited. But it is the lack in people's minds of this capitalist alternative or what capitalism can achieve that creates any kind of credibility to this these, uh, this nonsense. You know, the story goes on to say that even if Chavez supposedly did some things for the poor, a lot of the things that he did hurt the poor most of all. Currency devaluation made everything so expensive, all the necessities Absolutely. on which the poor spend 80%. The only point is that yeah. all of that was happening before Chavez, and they, they were screwing the poor before Chavez. What happened under Chavez is he screwed everybody. That is, if you look at wealth creation in Venezuela, down, standard of living down. And, and in that sense, it became more equal. That is, the, the, the poor got a little bit better, just a tiny bit better, but the rich and the middle class got devastated under Chavez. They were just crushed. So Chavez was an evil dictator, uh, and, and an awful, awful both human being and an awful, awful politician. Uh, I'm just saying that you have to remember what the real alternative is, and the real alternative is capitalism. And when we don't propose a real alternative, uh, 
that's when you get into trouble. If you look at South America, it keeps fluctuating between, you know, uh, uh, cronyism and and nutty egalitarianism, cronyism and egalitarianism. So policies that that are that are good in in quotes for the rich to policies that are good in quotes for the poor. Of course, all these policies are crummy for everybody if you understand what freedom and capitalism really are about. Well, and in a much more muted way, we have been fluctuating between back and forth here in yes. the United States the same. Well, we're, we're moving. We're becoming much more of a banana republic in that sense. Uh, cronyism is huge on the rise in the U.S. today. Uh, you know, you're seeing that with both Democrats and Republicans. And at the same time, we've got we're only increasing massively these help the poor uh, type of programs. But what's amazing is that here you can see the, 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 the impact of altruism. Right. Nobody criticizes Chavez about helping the poor. Even his critics, I heard uh, I was listening to NPR and they were interviewing people about Chavez and everybody they interviewed was a critic of Chavez. But everybody they interviewed said, well, look, he did he did bring out the problems with the poor and he did do something for the poor. Because the fact is that the standard of value for an altruist is suffering and, and therefore everything is measured. It's the same as. As an objectivist, when you go and speak about capitalism, the first question you get everywhere is, but what about the poor? What about people who can't take care of themselves? I mean, it's such a trivial, under capitalism, people who can't take care of themselves are such a trivial problem. They're such a smallest minority. I'm tempted to always say, who cares? Because you can't say that, but, but that's, yeah. but they do care because, because altruism at the forefront. So they have to first think of the people who suffer the most. That Why not say, why is the first response people have to capitalism? Oh, wow, people of ability will succeed tremendously and be incredibly happy. Isn't that cool? Right? Why isn't the, why, instead, the first thing is, wait a minute, what do we do about the one-tenth or one percent of the population that are born with some mental deficiency where they can't take care of themselves? Why, why is that what they think of? You know, that, uh, that's ingrained, ingrained, ingrained altruism. And, and unfortunately... Even us objectivists are not, uh, you know, are not free of that. You know, it's so hard to get rid of that because we're raised on it. Yeah, it's either poor criminals or lifeboat scenarios are the the big places they want to go right away. Well, you know? Somebody said here defeating cronyism is always popular, but let's remember that the alternative to cronyism that they present is worse cronyism because, of course, Chavez was in with business. He just was in with his business guys, right? The people he appointed. He nationalized a lot of business and then appointed. CEOs to run those businesses, and then they made gazillions of dollars. So, so socialism is much more crony than what we have, let's say, today in America. But you know, so you're not going to cure cronyism by increasing government power. The more government there is, the more cronyism there is. The only alternative to cronyism is capitalism, uh, uh, to true cronyism. Right. And speaking of where you have an even more totalitarian state, uh, <laughs> the last evasion story is Dennis Rodman goes to visit North Korea and says of Kim Jong-un, first of all, that uh, Kim Jong-un doesn't want to go to war, uh, that, you know, really he, he's a good guy. And then <laughs> this is from Rodman, quote, he's a good guy to me. He's my friend. I don't condone what he does, end quote. That's what he said to George Stephanopoulos. Uh, Stephanopoulos, or as Bosch calls him, step on all of us this week. But, uh, you know, this week, Kim Jong-un threatens preemptive nuclear strike against us. This is no good guy at all. Of course, he suppresses his whole population and, and initiates oh. force against his people, too. How can these, you know, how can Rodman evade the nature? 
Millions of people are dying in in North Korea and they're in adjunct poverty, and it's just what it's the most horrible regime. Maybe them and the Iranians are the, are the most horrible regimes in the world today. Um, you know, there are a few probably competitors in Africa, but but generally these guys are, are the worst. And for any American to go over there, I don't think anybody should go over there. They, they, what the founder of Google was over there a few weeks ago, and look, I never liked Dennis Rodman. I thought he was always a joke and a and 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 a, and a, and a nasty you know play. I think the best thing Dennis Rodman ever did in his life is play with Michael Jordan. Um, but uh, you know he, he's obviously an unprincipled uh, hater of America, uh, Dennis Rodman, and. Um, you know, I guess they deserve each other, Rodman, and he should move over there. I mean, uh, they should he should start. Maybe he should he should go over there and train the North Korean basketball team. I mean, that would be a good thing for him to do. Well, he does say he's going to be going back there to visit. So, good. Well, you know, I think he should long, stay. Long-standing friendship. I think he should stay. I mean, it is nihilism. <laughs> yes. it, it, whenever you know, but but remember, this is. I mean, this is so prevalent in our culture. People forget how many Americans were apologists for Stalin. Talk about evil. Right, Stalin was like number one and number two in in terms of polit- evil political leaders in human history, and there's so many Americans on the left and libertarians who uh, were defenders of Stalin. Murray Rothbard was was one of the apologists for Stalin, uh, and it is just horrific, horrific, and it's motivated. What what really motivated? It's hatred of the good for being the good. What motivates it is hatred of America. It's hatred for what American stands for. It's hatred of the American government. It's hatred for, you know, and it's bad. As much as I hate Obama, you have to defend the American government when the contrast is North Korea, right? No matter who's in power. So uh, this, is, this is nihilism. This is envy. This is but envy of, of uh, you know, hatred of the America, of, of the virtue of the American system of government. And this pervades uh much of the left including unfortunately elements within libertarian movement i'm not surprised that in this last answer you asked uh answered my last question for you Yaron, which was this really isn't anything new on the american scene that we've had people apologizing for horrible dictators before this doesn't say anything in particular about the decline in the american sense of life etc that this is no like, not if it's yeah. just one individual here or there i mean look at noam chomsky uh, Noam Chomsky was uh, still was an apologist of Pol Pot, right? Pol Pot killed forty percent of the Cambodian population, uh, and he was an apologist for him. Oh, you know, motivations were good. He was doing it for a good cause or whatever. He didn't really mean it. All this stuff. And again, most of the left, most of the intellectuals on the left, were apologists for Stalin for years, for decades, for decades and decades. Even after the fact that he killed, I don't know, anywhere between 40 to 100 million people. And somebody said, libertarians supporting Stalin? Yeah, read, read Rothbard. Well, read what Rothbard says. Rothbard says Stalin is better than the American government. Rothbard used to celebrate when American pilots used to get shot down in Vietnam. Uh, I mean, yes, they, they, this nihilism is prevalent on both. The, the, on everybody who's a nihilist. And there are elements within the libertarian movement that are nihilistic. I know. Uh, so... Uh, but it's just horrible, horrible. The 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 idea that you, this is you know I was one once uh, asked to debate Noam Chomsky, which would be huge, right? If I debated Noam Chomsky, 
it would make a huge amount of news. You know, it would be a huge audience. It would be able to really, you know, uh, contrast us with, with somebody on the left. And I refused. I would never, I would never debate Noam Chomsky. Noam Chomsky is evil. To sanction somebody as evil as that, that kind of approach to the world, is just horrific. I mean, there's certain people you do not get up on stage with. Anybody who's an apologist for, I would never, I, I wouldn't get up on stage with Dennis Rodman. I wouldn't shake Dennis Rodman's hand. I wouldn't get up on stage with a with with this guy. And, and there's certain religionists that I wouldn't get up on stage with. There's certain people that you cannot sanction because of the degree of evil by by getting up on stage. You're saying. There's some legitimacy to the case. I disagree with it, but general, you know, when I get up on stage with with somebody like David Callahan or, or a normal leftist, you say, you know, their position is wrong, and at the end of the day, it's an evil position, but it's not so outrageously ridiculous that you know, and and it's mainstream. It's within you know the boundaries of what is taught in America and what what somebody who is honest. Could still fall for for people who they're still honest liberals, they're still honest religionists. They're no honest apologists for Pol Pot or Stalin or for for North Korea. You cannot. This goes back to the evasion exactly, question. Right. You cannot be honest and think that uh, that these guys. You can be honest about the issue of force because the issue of force, I think, is complex. And and you you know that might. I think in global case it's evasion, but it might not be in all people's cases. You might be you might be not evading when it comes to socialism versus capitalism and so on, but with regard to Stalin, Pol Pot, in North Korea, it's so blatant, it's so right in your face. The facts are so known that uh, you know you you are evading and you are evil and you are wrong. I mean, yeah. would you debate? Would you go into the conclave right now at the Vatican and debate those guys? No, I, I wouldn't. No. I mean, they, they, what they're doing there. I mean, and and we have to realize this. I don't know how many cardinals they are, but these are just evil people sitting around figuring out who is going to cover up the latest child molestation case. I mean, the fact that anybody would cover the Catholic Church, I don't know how we got to this, but anyway, with any kind of seriousness is just horrific to me. I mean, these guys, it just, just every day there's new allegations about people doing this and people doing that. This is this is a, a group of of. Uh, you know, uh, this is horrific. This is evil. Uh, the Catholic Church today is an epitome of evil, and that anybody could take them seriously. Why there are any Catholics in the world today? I have no idea. Well, thank you, Yaron, for <laughs> going uh, to Cap- uh, Catholicism. Yeah, you know, I like I like to have the alliteration. You know, evil. You know, evasion. Email, etc. But I do it partly just for a gimmick to get people to listen to the show, but partly because this is really true. It's really evasion. Can I can yeah, I answer this question? this question? So this is a good question because you see it all the time. Why does nobody? Why is nobody an apologist for Hitler? Mm. Uh, because you He's still have right. apologists for Stalin and so on. And I think because racism is not PC, racism is not politically correct. So nobody objects to Hitler. Um, uh, national, you know, a controlling industry. Nobody objects to Hitler, uh, you know, motivating the youth. What they really upset about Hitler is his racism, uh, is, you know, genocide and uh, the Holocaust and what he did to, you know, the, the number of people he killed. But of course, Stalin killed more people than Hitler. But Stalin was racially indifferent. He killed Jews and non-Jews equally, right? Hitler, and it's, so it's just, 
it's yeah, equal opportunity oppressor, absolutely. So so remember, this is a good, even a better one than Hitler to illustrate this. Remember when South Africa uh, was was under apartheid, right? It's it was an awful system. It, it treated black uh, South Africans horrifically. It was racist and it was terrible and so on. But at the same time that South Africa was under apartheid, communist Russia was still communist. It was oppressing everybody, and yet the left and elements within the right wanted to boycott South Africa. They did do boycotted rights. They were kicked out of the UN. They were, you know, everybody was horrified by them because they were racist, which is, you know, let's be clear, horrible. But as long as you're oppressing everybody equally, right, <laughs> that's okay, right? So it's it's because racism, every, people are so sensitive today to the issue of racism. That's why nobody nobody's an apologist for Hitler. Nobody's an apologist for apartheid, and why they're so tolerant of communism, which oppresses people equally. And I've taken up like fifty minutes. Is that right? No, you've taken oh, okay. up forty. Though okay. we we should actually do the, the old switcheroo and yep. go on from evasion to can, other can stories. Can I pitch my talks quickly? Oh yeah, please. So I got do. five please talks do. coming out. You can find them on my blog, capitalism.einrand.org. Go on to events. Uh, on uh, Tuesday, I'm in Chicago doing a debate. Wednesday, I'm in uh, Michigan at Michigan State University giving a lecture. Uh, Thursday, I'm in New York at Baruch College uh, giving a lecture. Hopefully, you can make it there. Then next, the, we, the following week, Tuesday, I'm in Atlanta for a breakfast lecture. Uh, and then uh, Wednesday, I'm doing a debate at North Carolina State University in Raleigh. So hopefully you can make one of those. And if you don't live in those areas, let your friends know. You can find the Facebook links and everything either on my Facebook page or if you follow me on Twitter or on uh, the blog. Excellent. Yeah, and that blog is capitalism.einran.org. And at the blog, you can also find out about his book, Free Market Revolution, which he wrote with Don Watkins. Pick it up if you haven't yet. Thanks very much, Jerome. Okay, let's go ahead and go on to the next story. If you want to call and chime in at 760-888-5817. Again, 760-888-5817. And pretty quick here, I'm going to be joined by cartoonist Bosch Faustin to discuss what we have left. The first little story here, and it I mean, this is just a Berkeley councilman, city councilman who proposed this, but I just thought it was so awful I wanted to mention it to you. Berkeley Councilman proposes email tax to fund the U.S. Postal Service. This is from CBS. This is the local CBS website, sanfrancisco.cbslocal.com. March 7th, this story was posted. And the story says, a Berkeley City Councilman has suggested that a tax on email may be wise to help fund the United States Postal Service. This is District 8 Supervisor. His name is Gordon Wozniak. And when I first saw the name Wozniak, I thought, please, no, not Steve Wozniak failing us, right? But he proposed two things. He proposed a bit tax. And then also what he calls a, quote, very tiny tax on email, end quote. He wants to use this to help the post office, but he says, oh, gee, it might also discourage spam. That's his excuse for getting his hands into our wallets more and more and more. The Postal Service apparently has suffered a $15.9 billion loss in the past budget year. And, in fact, as many of you know, they have announced plans to end regular Saturday mail delivery starting in August. And I have another story from The Hill, which was uh, posted on the 9th of this month, that says that they are actually planning to go ahead and do this, that they plan to save $2 billion 
in, in, you know, doing that. But, you know, this is patently ridiculous. Basically, they're forcing all of us to subsidize the quote-unquote business, because it's not really a business, it's a government branch, uh, you know, that has stopped, that is not efficient anymore. We've stopped patronizing the U.S. Postal Service because we have found faster, cheaper, more efficient ways to communicate with one another. And they want to go ahead and say, well, you know, it's not really fair that technology and civilization has sort of surpassed the U.S. Postal Service. They want to stick with the antiquated model of letter delivery and make us subsidize it. They don't like the fact that they have to change along with the times. One thing that the story goes ahead and uh, you know mentions is that because we have increased our online purchases, the U.S. Postal Service has seen an increase in business with respect right. to package mailing. So it's not as if they don't even have some demand, but they know they're just stuck to this idea of snail mail in the chat room. Uh, Juji Fruit says snails even laugh at snail mail. I mean, we all do. We didn't talk about snail mail. Snails are slimy and gross, right? We, we, we just don't like that kind anymore. So this idea that they want to force us is patently ridiculous, of course. So that was my second story. So we had evasion, email, and now finally I would like to get to excellence. I think we've heard enough of negativity for, for one week. Let's talk about some things that were excellent this week. And one of the things that I thought was excellent this week, to the extent that I got distracted from doing work that I should have otherwise been doing in order to watch this, was Rand Paul's filibuster on the Senate floor. As many of you know this week, Rand Paul filibustered on Wednesday from about 11.45 in the morning uh, Eastern Time. And then he went ahead and filibustered for 13, nearly 13 hours, at which point he signed off. I think it was 12 hours and 52 minutes later that he went ahead and signed off. And, you know, the point that he was trying to make, I thought, was well taken which is that, and, and this is how he framed it there, the very limited point that he was trying to make, I liked. And um, it said that if there is an American on American soil who is a non-combatant, who is posing no imminent threat to anyone, that that person should not be struck down by a drone here in the United States. And all Rand Paul said he wanted is for Eric Holder to affirm that that was the case, that there should be some sort of due process of law, and you can't just go striking Americans on American soil when they are non-combatants, they pose no imminent threat. That was all he wanted, and he could not get that statement. So he went ahead and filibustered the nomination of John Brennan. So I agreed with the basic limited point that Rand Paul was making. Moreover, so much of what Rand Paul was saying in the course of the filibuster was excellent, and even more so, some of the people who chimed in on the filibuster, particularly the new senator from Texas, Ted Cruz, said some really good things during the filibuster. So it's just, to me, it was just so rare to see somebody stand up for an issue on principle, be willing to talk and talk and talk, not to mention the fact that he doesn't need a teleprompter. He had notes. He wasn't really planning, apparently, to no. filibuster no. that no. day. He no. just no. gave an amazing performance, and you saw some of the better 
Republicans and even one Democrat come to his side and join in on this. It was a unique spectacle that I thought deserves the title of excellence. Now, I know Bosch wants to throw some cold water on it, so I'm going to go ahead and let him chime in here for a minute. Well, I mean, it was good that he did it. I'm glad that someone stood up and criticized Obama, you know, on um, on the issue that he felt was was a, a fundamental issue. But uh, Rand Paul, I mean, I'm I'm afraid he's like his father in a lot of ways, but I think he can hide it better. He's not as kooky. He doesn't say the stupid things that 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 Ron Paul says. And just as as a small example, uh, the uh, Daniel Greenfield from the Celtic Knish blog says that Rand Paul is on record as opposing Guantanamo Bay. Supports releasing the terrorists. He's on record opposing drone strikes against al-Qaeda terrorists in Pakistan. So, I mean, he's uh, probably an anti-war guy, and this is just part of it. Yeah, so this is part of his larger agenda. So even though during his filibuster, he was very careful to set off the idea of using drones on even American citizens in Afghanistan. Exactly. He he separated that issue for purposes of his filibuster. Maybe in his larger scheme, he is going to go ahead and promote the idea that we can't even use right. drones in the way that we've been doing it overseas. And when you know when an American joins Al Qaeda, they they're no longer American. Yeah. It's over. Yeah. I have um, I have a blog post from I can't remember how long ago. If you go to don'tletitgo.com you can find it. But it's the idea of citizenship is revocable. Yeah. And if That's you decide Mark Lubin actually said almost the same thing. This is now. I mean you you wrote that like last year. Yeah, yeah. Which you know, which is it's it's just a great point. It's yeah. A great way of yeah. putting it. You you can your citizenship can be revoked in virtue of you taking certain actions. At least that's my view. And uh, I think Rand Paul might disagree. So that is the the cold water. Also, one thing, uh, Andrew C. McCarthy, a National Review Online, writes a piece called What Rand Paul Misses. It's basically, he's he's saying it's not a constitutional constitutional issue. He goes, enemies of America... Have, they they can be killed, you know. But whatever, I'm just check it out if you can. It was good that he did it, and I loved seeing Ted Cruz in particular walk up and say what he said. Yeah. Which, which you? Yeah. No, I've I've got I've got some notes on that. That was one of the things that I thought was so excellent that it brought out Ted Cruz coming onto the Senate floor, joining Rand Paul again for the limited purpose of the filibuster. I think a lot of people didn't know because Rand Paul went on and on and talked about so many things the the narrow point that he was trying to make. And I think the narrow point that he was trying to make is good, but Bosch, yeah, I, I agree with you that if you're suddenly going to jump on the bandwagon and say Rand Paul for 2016 yeah, president, not, you know, not, not yet. we need to see a lot more from him. We need to see particularly a lot more on foreign policy, and I'd like to see some more on some of the religious social issues from him as well before I would ever get behind him in that way. But Ted Cruz joined him on the floor and at a certain point was reading to Rand Paul because for you know the Senate rules say that Paul Rand Paul could not access all the tweets that were being directed his way and i was among people i mean i think it was one of one of the most vocal ones saying that they should read Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged or Galt's yeah. speech or maybe her essay Man's Rights and the Nature of Government i was tweeting links to those essays at the Ayn Rand Institute website to you know Senator Rand Paul it's possible that Ted Cruz, in reading all the different tweets that were directed in support of Rand Paul, that he was seeing some of these tweets, because here's what he said. This is a quote from Ted Cruz, read on the floor. Okay, this was said on the floor in the Senate during the filibuster. Quote, one of my all-time heroes, Ayn Rand. I'm sorry, can you repeat that? Yeah, he said, one of my all-time heroes. 
Is that amazing? This is a senator, U.S. senator. One of my all-time heroes, Ayn Rand, in Atlas Shrugged, described how the parasitical class would put into place arbitrary power. Standardless rules, precisely so the productive citizens in the private sector would have to come on bended knee to those in government seeking special dispensation, seeking special favors, because that arbitrary and standardless rule empowers the political class and disempowers the people. I couldn't help but think about Ayn Rand's observations. End quote. Awesome. Since when do you hear that from a politician? Unapologetic. When he's a senator, not before, not you know, because because what's his name has walked back his Paul praise. Ryan, Paul Ryan has walked back yeah. his praise. He's a senator in the chamber. I mean, he he went out there and said that, which is awesome. And you know, he he's the one who my mind keeps going back to 2016, even later. But but there's a question about his eligibility. In, the, in terms of his birth and yeah, so, you're you're talking about yeah. Ted Cruz. Yeah, I I have no idea. Some people think that Ted Cruz is too slick, but who knows? It, it, it's He's too early. And, and I'm not, I'm not saying I'm not saying. Oh gosh, let's just jump on the bandwagon. You know, bandwagon for Ted Cruz. Now he did keep his promise to introduce a bill to completely repeal Obamacare. Yeah. He has now said that when the continuing resolution that's been passed through the House that funds Obamacare, when that comes to the Senate, he has said that he will introduce an amendment that will require the defunding of Obamacare. And he says, even though he wants to repeal Obamacare completely, he's introducing it in that context for the limited purpose of defunding it until the economy recovers, which I I hate that. Yeah. Stupid, crappy, pragmatist yep. language from politicians. But you understand that he's making the resolution or you know the amendment in this limited context to try to get people to sign on for it. Right. Because you could say, well, you know, it's going to cripple. Obamacare is crippling the economy, and I think any rational politician could agree with that. So he might be able to get a lot of people and to vote for the defunding for a limited period of among time. Among the three uh, wacko birds, as John McCain calls them, uh, Rand Paul. Ted Cruz and um, Marco Rubio. Uh, Ted Cruz is the only one, I, I believe, who voted against Brennan, against Kerry, against uh, what's his name, that Chuck uh, Hagel. Hagel. Yeah. He's the only one of them three. Yeah. Rand yeah, Paul voted Rand for Paul Hagel, so that voted. should raise a red flag And right there. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Rubio voted for uh, who do you, for uh, Brennan. So I don't, I, I don't, yeah. I don't get it. It's revulsifying. And moreover, three of the politicians who actually joined in on the filibuster actually also went to that dinner with Obama that was held on the same night. Pat Toomey, Ron Johnson, right. who's who, a, who, who said that he's a fan of yeah. Ayn Rand, and also Saxby Shambliss from uh, Georgia. They all went to Obama's little dinner and then went and said, oh, well, we support the filibuster too. I mean, at least they supported Shameful. the filibuster, but my gosh. Uh, one thing also, uh, um, Stewart mentions there that it was a, uh, Justin Amash, if that's how you pronounce his name, who was the third quote unquote wacko bird. Is also an, another guy, Mike. Uh, what's his name? Lee. Mike. Mike Lee. I think Utah. Lee, I believe. I think he's from I Utah. Think so. Yeah, I'm starting so there, to get to know these names. There are some individuals out there right now which are giving us quote unquote hope. Let's yeah. see how far it goes. Well, and I think the other reason it deserves the title excellence, again, I'm using, you know, I, I do stretch it a little <laughs> bit to get my alliteration for right. my show titles, people, but excellence because you just rarely see that spectacle of the filibuster that's just, it was done so yeah. well in the traditional style. And you know and what? The, the news had to, they couldn't ignore it. They could not ignore it, which is yeah. awesome. No, the, they media, had the media definitely could not ignore it. So there was that. And then you have to admit that 
anything that makes McCain and Lindsey Graham <laughs> that upset right. that all they can say is that these guys are wacko birds, yeah. I think that deserves the yeah, title of excellence. They had well. dinner with the wacko bird, you know, the wacko bird in chief. So I yeah, how, how do they excuse that? So here's the second mention from Ted Cruz about Rand. Uh, Rand was talking about uh, Eric. I mean, excuse me. Ted Cruz was talking about Eric Holder who they grilled on whether or not it would be constitutional for the federal government to kill U.S. citizens on U.S. soil. And Cruz said that he found himself, quote, thinking of those arbitrary standards Ayn Rand talked about, that if the only protection we the people have against the federal government choosing to take the life of a U.S. citizen on U.S. soil is our trust that they would refrain from doing what is inappropriate, rather than the protections of the Constitution, then I would suggest that our liberty is fragile indeed, end quote. And it's exactly right. Ayn Rand supported a government of laws and not men. And as Rand Paul and as Ted Cruz kept bringing up throughout the length of that 13-hour filibuster, it's not enough that Obama says, oh, I don't intend to use this power that I might arguably have to use drones against U.S. citizens, you know, that, that the, the fact that Obama, you think, is a good guy. I don't think he's a good guy. These not. these guys, I don't <laughs> know if they guy. feel like they have to say he's a good guy. Well, they're bad yeah. guys, too. That's why they say that. Rand Paul says he, he doesn't believe Obama intends to do this stuff. But whatever. The point is, is that we should not be at the mercy no. of whether a particular politician is, is so-called good. But they want the latitude. You know, it's like uh, Obama and Holder. They want the latitude to do whatever they want. That's it. And these guys got to corner them. That's why they did it. Uh, the other excellent thing, and we're just going to mention it briefly, Kobe Bryant's performance. This week. Not today in particular, but the two games prior to this, it was against the Hornets yeah. and against two as and, well, uh, Bosch. The Raptors. The Raptors. And it the was, Toronto it was Raptors. as good a performance as they, they got to go back to Jerry West and Ma- Michael Jordan to say back-to-back games of that kind of dominance. 41 points, 42 points, I think 12 Rebounds. Dunking. Dunk, I mean, he's been he's 34 years old. He's dunking as if he's a, I don't know, 20 year old. So his uh, his little Twitter hashtag title, which is now Vino. Somebody gave him yeah, the he Vino. He's like a wine that gets better with age. I think it's it's perfectly apt. Yeah. Let me quickly, Bosch, if you don't mind, get sure. to a couple news stories. We have a couple good news stories. Uh, we got a call just now. Unfortunately, we've only got a couple minutes left, so I'm sorry I'm not able to take it. Uh, the other call is Debbie, who okay. spoke earlier. Cool. You, you, yeah, so Debbie, Debbie's later. back. Yay. Yay. Uh, two things. Hawaii passed something this week, and it's called the Stephen Tyler Act. Yes, Stephen Tyler from Aerosmith. What the law says is that it is a civil violation if people take unwanted photos or videos of others in their private moments. And those others include celebrities. So it's not the case that you give up your privacy simply because you're a celebrity. Uh, I say bravo. I say that you do not have a First Amendment right that includes unauthorized access to other people's private matters. The other good news is that the Ninth Circuit has held recently that the Fourth Amendment applies at the border to your computer. Everything on your computer can't be searched without some sort of particularized suspicion, perhaps a warrant. Um, You know, this is a limited victory. 
in both cases. If you want to look at my theory of privacy, all you have to do is Google Beyond Reductionism and the name Peekoff, P as in Peter, E-I-K-O-F-F, and you'll find my views on privacy. But I thought this was a good sign, both of these stories. Everybody, we have reached the end of an hour again. i like to thank Yaron Brook and also Bosch Faustin for joining in with me today. I wish it was longer. If you want to go ahead and comment on this show, go to DontLetItGo.com. That's my blog, and there is a post for this show. You can write your comments there. You can follow Don't Let It Go Unheard on Facebook. There's a page there. You can also follow me, Amy Peekoff, on Twitter. Bosch Faustin, you can follow him on Twitter, and you can find his work at Front Page Magazine. He's got a card corner as well. Uh, Big thing, please spread the word if you like the show. This is a word-of-mouth operation, and although you wouldn't know it, my mouth is only so big. Thanks a lot. Good night.